The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. We are spiritual beings having a human experience. This is UnityOnlineRadio.org, the voice of an awakening world. It's time for a different take on spirituality for the modern world. Welcome to Big Universe with Jim Lefter. Hey there, and welcome to Big Universe on Unity Online Radio. I'm Jim Lefter. I'll be your host for today. I'm a media consultant. Joining me once again is my wonderful co-host, Spiritual Rebel Sarah Bowen. Sarah's the author of Spiritual Rebel, a positively addictive guide to finding deeper perspective and higher purpose. And look for her new book coming soon. Sacred Send-Offs, an animal chaplain's advice for surviving animal loss, making life meaningful, and healing the planet. Hi, Sarah. How are you doing today? I am doing okay. Living the dream, Jim. How about you? I'm doing good. You know, I uh, I added that uh, stuff about your new book, and uh, your your introduction is getting longer and longer. You've got so many books coming out. You know, I think with... Um... SEO now with, you know, algorithms for finding books, we're just getting longer and longer and longer titles so that we can get more keywords in. But you're right. I may have to kind of um, dial that back a little bit to make our intro a little shorter. I think it's perfect. I think it's perfect. So let's, uh, you know, on today's episode, we're going to talk, we're going to dive into Center for Spiritual Living and Science of Mind. Uh, philosophy with uh, Jesse Jennings, who's the uh, Q&A guy for uh, the Science of Mind magazine. And I want everybody to know that we're going to dive into the basics of unity coming up very shortly. Um, I think it's important to to kind of take a look at all the different uh, new thought philosophies, but, you know, we're a unity channel and we're we're totally into unity as well. So we're going to dive into unity just shortly but you know, I, I'm a, I'm both a child of unity and science of mind, so I think I think this is going to be interesting. I do too. You know, I like to learn a little bit more, um, go in depth in some of our episodes where we really kind of unearth some of the ideas that I think mix and mingle between some of our traditions. I think that's why I, I love being interface so much. Is you know, where do we have these different inspirations from, and what can we take perhaps from? from one line of thinking that applies to another line of thinking, rather than having to see them as these kind of separate silos. You know, there's such rich um, inspiration that happens when, well, you know, think about it, like when you make soup or you make a stew, like we don't just put carrots in, you know? (laughs) So I think, I think getting a little inspiration from different, uh, different cultures, different um, spiritual traditions, it, it, it gives us a lot to think about. So I'm really looking forward to today's interview with Jesse. And I think, you know, both the Fillmore's and Ernest Holmes, uh, you know, they were, they were children of 
many philosophies. You know, they they really explored other religious experiences and spiritual experiences to kind of come to a synthesis of what they felt was, you know, a a, a good path to go on or a, a potential path. But neither of them dismissed, you know, other paths for other people. I think that's important. I think I think so too. When you know, we look at like the history of how different. Um things happen or different inspiration comes into the world that it's often when something mixes and that time was so fertile when they were, you know, having their inspirations and, and hearing what they were hearing or discovering what they were discovering, you know, that it was a time where there was a lot of thought going on about, you know, multicultural ideas of, you know, how do we, how do we interrelate these? What, you know, what do we do with all that? that you know, when we think about, the first parliament of the world religions at the end of the 1800s and what that did when people started talking to each other. Um, well, you know, imagine just, that talking to each other, talking to each other, and not dismissing I, each other. That, that's a I, good thing we need to know now again. It is. I, you know, the first time I went to, uh, to Chicago to the place where they had that, that amazing meeting, you know, I just sat there. I was so amazed at this just idea of bringing together all these people with, at that time, what they thought were very, very different ideas, right? That that these things had nothing to do with each other, uh, but we need to learn how to coexist. And out of that, we really discovered that there's a lot of similar thoughts underneath things and that we want to learn how to love each other and to be compassionate and how to have a relationship with, with divinity in whatever form that is. So we were able to see the, the places that we have similarities, but also not to gloss over our distinctiveness. And I think that's that's really important not to say that, you know, oh, everything's just the same, but there's really distinctive different ways that we have of connecting. And well, today we'll look at one. Sounds awesome. That's going to be fun. So do you have a quote for us today? I do. Spirituality is natural goodness. God is not a person. God is a presence personified in us. Spirituality is not a thing. It is the atmosphere of God's presence, goodness, truth, and beauty. Oh, I like that. Of course you do. It's Ernie Holmes. Of course it is. (laughs) Which ties right into the universal mind contains all knowledge. It is the potential ultimate of all things. To it, all things are possible. Again, Ernie. I I knew we were going to overdo it. We had to. But listeners, please hang with us because there's a lot of great stuff here. We're going to dig in today. Sounds good. Are you ready to go into the episode? Let's do it. Hello, everyone. It is Ed Biagioti, and I am the co-host of Funniest Thing with Daryl and Ed on Unity Online Radio. And I am happy to be talking to you on Big Universe about the subject of success. There is a great quote from Marianne Williamson, which says, The decision to be the divine attracts the divine. That's where success is born from. Success is born from the choice to identify ourselves with who we truly are and let go of the extraneous noise which would have us thinking we're small or lacking or needy. Or that we need to argue and fight and fuss with the world around us. That's why practices like meditation, inspired reading, and affirmative prayer are so important. Because when we tap in and align with who we truly are, the divine, then our success is assured. So have a great and successful day. 
and take care of yourselves and remember that Daryl and Ed love you. It's time for our interview. Jesse G. Jennings is a contributing editor and monthly columnist for Guide for Spiritual Living, Science of Mind magazine. He created the book, The Essential Ernest Holmes, which is an excellent book, and wrote the foreword to the complete edition of The Science of Mind. Reverend Jennings has, has led Creative Life Spiritual Center in suburban Houston, Texas, since forming it as a study group in 1983. In 1997, he received the honorary degree of Doctor of Divinity, and in 19, 2019, was presented with the Ernest Holmes Award by Centers for Spiritual Living. Hey, Jesse, welcome to Big Universe. Thank you, Jim. Good to be here. It's awesome to have you on. Um, you were on some time ago, and I guess, uh, yeah. you know, you you weren't, we didn't scare you off so that you're willing to come on with us again. No, this is the first time I've seen your face, though, because last time we did it all by phone. Well, I hope that doesn't scare you off. <laughs> I can see where we're headed here, you two. Absolutely. You go. It's good to meet you, Reverend Sarah. So your new book, More Than We Seem, has just been published uh, recently. It's based on your Science of Mind articles, uh, your whole Q&A uh, uh, section where you answer readers' questions. And as I mentioned before the uh, the show, I am literally stealing many of our questions directly from the book because it's so rich and it hits so many different things of the science of mind philosophy. So I, I want to make sure that's okay with you. Sure, that's okay with me. Awesome, awesome. Well, my first question to you is: How do you? How did you find your way to science of mind? It's a really long story that would eat up an awful lot of clock. But my family got involved in religious science in the early. 1960s and uh, as I was coming up the the literature was in our home um, and then when I was 20 I was reintroduced to it by somebody my own age and I it was then that I you might say bought in awesome so in a nutshell what is science of mind science of mind is a philosophy we used to call it a philosophy of faith a way of life that was the that was the tagline. It's a philosophy that life is one whole system. We might say the universe or all of creation, all of creation in form and, and everything in potential is part of one whole intelligent system. And further, that this idea is contained within the religious philosophies of the world at an esoteric level. And the people that are, we think of as mystics and, and great deep thinkers have, have found this and brought this out. And so the founder of Science of Mind, Ernest Holmes, sort of cultivated the field of all of these different philosophies and, and religions and, and dug deep and found what he saw as a, a thread running through all of these philosophies of the ages. So practically speaking, it's a, it's a way of being in the world that is about a unitary wholeness rather than a duality of spirit and matter, life and death, oneness, I guess would be the key. And through the practice of this, you can have a, a beneficial experience of life, become a more compassionate person. Um, and, and just generally find find greater happiness. You'll probably come back to happiness later in this, but it's uh, 
is something that's it's also non it's really non-denominational and beyond religious borders because initially Holmes set this out as a teaching to enhance, to augment what people were already doing in their spiritual practice, rather than founding it as a standalone religion that you had to swear off everything else and come join this. Which is always interesting to me. I mean, he never really intended for it to be like a church and, uh, you know, like you said, a separate entity. I'm wondering, you know, because we're on Unity Radio, and we're going to dive into unity details um, in an upcoming show as well. Mm-hmm. I, I wondered what were some of the differences and similarities with, with the unity's philosophy? The, the history of new thought is fascinating. It's got a lot of tendrils and a lot of influences around it that I keep finding more. I keep finding more than, and I've been studying it for years and more keep uncovering themselves, but it, it happened that in the 19th century, there was this explosion of thought in, in the empowerment of the individual coming out of the Enlightenment and so on and so forth. And so Mary Baker Eddy, founding Christian Science, Emma Curtis Hopkins being a student of hers, and then going out on her own, and Charles and Myrtle Fillmore becoming students of Emma Curtis Hopkins, as was Holmes at the very end of Hopkins's life, they all kind of drank from the same well. It's a good well, well, and it's a deep well, and we keep finding more of the underground river under it, you know, but the the distinctions, it's it's hard to pin down. For one thing, there are many religious science centers that that feel more like unity churches and vice versa. It it depends on the ministry. It depends on the congregation and, and so forth. One of the greatest religious science teachers I've ever read or heard of was was Dr. Eric Butterworth, who was unity to the core. But I read this man, and 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 he and it's and it could be Ernest Holmes, uh, if you know, in a later iteration. But I think unity, and you'd really have to. I mean, if you're unity people, you would know this yourself. I think unity positions itself more as a Christian denomination than religious science does. Religious science thinks of itself as being more kind of a party to world faith systems. Christianity plays a big part in it because of where we are mostly in the world, in the Western Hemisphere. Uh, That's really all I can. But, I mean, down the line, the the practice of the oneness is identical. The, uh, The dream of a better world, the techniques we use, very similar. Our spiritual mind treatment and unity, contemplative prayer line up beautifully yeah i'm i consider myself both a, a child of both traditions you know i'm i'm both unity and science of mind i i i'm into both of them um i i'm curious how science of mind sees the concept of god and the universe and and that that sort of uh experience well god is a mystery god is a mystery and we, we don't try to uh, to define God in such a way as to remove the mystery from the equation. But we look at God as being the intelligence and the order and the purposefulness and especially the love that holds everything together. And we look at God as being fully present within its own creation because it is the only thing that is infinite. And I was saying this to another group the other day, the only thing God cannot do is stop being God. Oh, I love that. Okay. 
you know, I can change personalities. I can, I can opt out of one way, but, but God keeps being God and it's an infinite system and being infinite, it has to be fully present at every part within itself. And if it's fully present at every part within itself, and one of those parts is me and one is you and one is, you know, every living thing. And so you have an, you have an individuality and a personification present but not as a separation, not as an exclusion or a removal within the whole system. That makes sense. It it does. Uh, It brings up some other questions about, um, you know, the sense of a a personalness, a personal connection to this, the the universe, to God. Is that, is that part of the philosophy that you can have a personal connection that way? Absolutely. Now to me, I may be alone in this. I don't think so. But to me, the personal connection that I have with God most often manifests itself through God's creation. That is to say, if I pray for relief, that relief, 99% of the time, anyway, comes through another human agency or comes through, comes through a created agency. Uh, that it's, it's not a supernatural thing. We think of God not as a being, but as beingness. And so God's love is not like showered down on us from above so much as it is present in the hands and hearts of the people that we interact with. The idea of, of God is love and, and God is good, isn't good sort of a, a human the idea of good and, and evil kind of human inventions. How do we know that, uh, you know, the sense of God is good. The sense of the universe is good. That's a great question, man. And that's, that's a conversation. That's a debate really that's taken place through new thought for a really long time. Um, if God is good in the sense of what I think of as good, or you think of as good, then suddenly God stops being all there is. And, and, and God's a, a a moral thread or something that, you know, that running through creation rather than all creation. Yeah. We decide what's good. And usually what we decide is good is what's functional, what's useful when you get right, you know, it kind of, if you remove sentiment from it for a moment, anyway, you, you look at good as being life proceeding effectively. That sounds really clinical, but bear with me, you know, love works because love is functional functionally constructive it it builds on itself and so on and similarly what we call bad or evil is what breaks down and separates and 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 ultimately um costs itself harms itself limits itself so yeah these are agreed upon principles that we have in the world of social cohesion really that I, I speak to you today with the weight of war hanging over us, as you yes. know, and yes. and um, and in and in deep shock and in deep grief for the people of Ukraine. Uh, the the evil that we do. This is maybe anticipating a later question you have, but the evil that we do to each other, I feel, and, and our teaching presents, that comes out of unmet human needs. Uh, you know, I'm not getting what I need. I get mad about it. I find some other people are mad about it. You get enough of them together, you raise an army, you start a war. And uh, and it's it's a way that we, it's a non-functional way 
but our species has obviously not learned that yet. Uh, so, so, yeah. So, Jesse, yes. that, yeah, so anticipating the question probably that's right in my mind, too, is that often in these situations, we hear this term God's will that gets kind of tossed around as, as the reason for uh, something happening. How does science of mind address this idea of God's will? Science of mind sees God's will as being God's way. Um, it's like the Tao in a way, and, and not to reinterpret the Tao for our purposes here, but it's the Holmes said that he felt that God was not a planning intelligence, but a patterning intelligence. And I really like that. Mm, yeah. So God, if God is all there is, then God doesn't have a specific agenda separate from its own beingness for your life or mine. The rules that we have, going all the way to the Ten Commandments, were created by, with all the respect, people, uh, Moses or whomever wrote them. And and those rules were were really for the people of the time. They're not bad rules at all, but they were they were about crowd management. They were about behavior control for the children of Israel moving across the wilderness, you know. And uh, so what religion tends to do is it, it creates a number of rules, different rules for different religions. And then it, it puts these, it signs God's name to these, really. It says, you know, here, here you are. In a more organic way of looking at things, and certainly an esoteric way of looking at things, the intention of the universe is just I am. It's just I am. And everything else is created by we who are individualized beings within that. So we specify. We particular. That's a word, Holmes. He may have invented it. We particularize the, the limitless, limit the limitless along the lines of our own beliefs and, and uh, hopes and dreams and so on. So I'm wondering, you know, you know, in, in New Thought, a lot we talk about our thoughts create, you know, thoughts are creative, thoughts create our lives. But some people say, you know, or, or the, the idea is that do we choose the bad things that happen to us? You know, sometimes... I think it's misused in new thought that, you know, we, I don't know, do we choose uh, for bad things to happen to us? No. I mean, you can, you know, and actually. You can so make we, that decision. Yeah, like you can, yeah, when I, I, when I eat that whole have. packet, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, whole yeah. packet of cookies. Right, yeah. exactly. Too many <laughs> Oreos. I mean, I've, I've, I've made some stupid choices in life and, and uh, I've, I've made, I've made some where I knew there were stupid choices and I made them anyway. And, uh, you know, so, yeah, you in the human equation, sure. Um, but no, look, we have a lot of sound bites. We have a lot of slogans that we've tossed around over the years. Change your thinking, change your life is one of them. Uh, but a slogan, it, it doesn't it doesn't capture the nuances of human experience. Hmm. I, I choose. I choose things, you choose things when you have all the information. Uh, then, then you can say, yeah, you know, this is, a, this is predicated on I've done my work. I've got the research in it. And so on. But most of the time what we choose, we, we give permission to, we back into, or we choose by not choosing. Wrong place, wrong time. And I can't call that a choice. And I especially can't call it a choice if by doing that, I'm piling on suffering on somebody. 
Yeah. Yeah. I had, you know, I had somebody, honestly, I had somebody tell me one time that they had been alienated by a new thought center because their house had literally burned down and somebody standing on the curb with them, somebody standing, watching the house burn said, well, how do you think you created this? Oh my goodness. Yeah. And, and thought evidently they were being helpful with that. Uh, that that kind of thing is anathema to us. Makes us look ridiculous as well as heartless. So, yeah, no, we. Yet, I have to say, nothing is entirely random. So there is some field in which things occur. That in some way we've sort of bracketed for ourselves. I believe that. I can't prove it. But I think what happens is the more inner work we do, the closer together the brackets come. We narrow the field of of possible outcomes to include a randomness that's somewhat narrower than than it was. So, you know, sometimes people fear like they, they fear having a negative thought, you know, because sometimes it's you know, we're taught that our thoughts are creative. Oh my gosh, I, I just thought something negative. It, it, it seems overly simple, simplified, but some people feel that. What do you say to that? Everybody has negative thoughts. Um, I think what you want to try to heal are the negative thought patterns that are surrounded by emotion that become um, what psychology is called explanatory styles of, say, pessimism where all incoming information is interpreted in a negative self-defeating way. And I think that that's the psychological, that's spiritual psychology at work there. And that there's a psychological response to that within the self of healing the, the trauma or such that may have led to that way of looking at life. Beyond that, we have, I, you know, I had a bunch of negative thoughts this morning when I got up and read my news feed. Um, yeah, and, definitely. <laughs> any you know, day you pick up the news. Any day. You know. Any day. Yeah, any day ever, you know. And, uh, and and so what do I do with that? I have to go back to what I remember to be a larger encircling truth of there is one life, that life is God, that life is all the life there is, and calm myself down and sort myself out, and then and then return to the facts of the world from that premise of oneness and and see how I can help. How do you prevent overwhelm when you when you get all this stuff? We only have a minute, so I know that you're going to answer the whole thing <laughs> Solve in, it in, in a minute, Jim. 30 seconds or so. <laughs> yeah, how about a, a yes-no question? How do you prevent overwhelm? Regular spiritual practice, that's the only thing I know, is to take time, and you can argue how much time and when, but you take time regularly to go to the place where nothing has ever been wrong to the source of your own being and breathe in that and then return to the world and we're meant to return to the world because we have work to do here well we'll be right back on big universe on unity online radio Welcome back to a slightly off-kilter look at spirituality. This is Big Universe with Jim Lefter. 
Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Big Universe on Unity Online Radio. We're talking with Jesse Jennings. So, Jesse, in Science of Mind, does evil exist? Yes, but not as an absolute force, not in opposition to God. It exists as a field of consciousness within within the human species. I don't think animals are evil. I mean, they eat each other, and they they eat each other, and they, you know, nature is wild. But I think we're we're the species that can concoct plans, create conspiracies, and and make up whole big dramatic prep for acting out on each other. So yeah, so yeah, it exists, but not as an absolute. Not as a yeah. Right. I'm curious about science of mind's relationship with, you know, with medicine, with, with illness and with science. And, you know, sometimes people in, in some religious philosophies separate them, you know, Mm -hmm. or say that, uh, you know, it's, it's just an illusion. You know, I, I wondered what science of mind has to say about medicine, for instance. Well, we've had a hard look at that whole question the last two and a half years, you know. <laughs> yeah, and, definitely. Uh, COVID. Yeah, we have. Yeah. yeah. Um, our relationship with medicine is that God is all there is. And so medicine is God and the medical community is God. And it's all part of the same system. And if I ask for healing, if I open myself to healing, my healing can be facilitated by medicine uh, as surely as it can by anything else. Um we maintain the body has an intelligence within it. It's constantly healing itself. It's when the healing properties of the body get interfered with in some way that things break down, but it's, it's got everything it needs built into it, as does nature generally. Ernest Holmes said, until we can walk on water, we take a boat. I love that expression. <laughs> you know? That's great. He says, you know, if you, if you have a pain, take a pill. Um, if the pill is said to help, it's, if you have the pain, I'm, I'm taking liberties with it here now, but if the pain continues, if it's a repetitive thing, then you want to look at consciousness. What is this telling me? What is this information that my body is trying to communicate to me? So holistic care comes into it. Some of our people are into that, Ayurvedic stuff. It's, it's up to the individual what you want to do. Uh, we had, you know, mask mandates and things in place across the country. We, uh, we vaccinations and stuff. It was, uh, it was never put out by our organization a demand that all of us go get vaccinated. Um, but at the same time, we were not offering religious exemptions from rules that were laid down by different states. Uh, so we try to be good citizens too. So yeah, it's a, it's a holistic thing. And, uh, and it, it tends to be the case, and we're not alone in thinking this, that the management of emotion has a great deal to do with the state of your health, especially in terms of chronic situations going forward. So can you talk a little bit about the steps of spiritual mind treatment as part of that kind of holistic approach to our lives? I can. There's um, Spiritual mind treatment is a technique of, of prayer. It's not exclusive in that it's the only kind of prayer you can do um, because again, we honor all faith traditions and so on. But treatment is a, treatment is a method 
of moving from that I am awareness of oneness out into the particulars of it. So it begins there in, in the customary teaching, and there's five steps in one way of looking at it and seven in another, but the, the, I'll give you the five. This is, this is the edited version here, shortly. The, you start with the awareness, the, the recognition that there's one life, and that life is spirit, and that life is non-physical, it's unseen, and it's ubiquitous. Second step, because it is that, I am one, I who am doing this treatment, I am one with it. And its life is my life. And then in the third step, what we do is affirm some particular outcome, especially at the level of feeling. So rather than necessarily saying, I don't necessarily saying, I don't know, I have a new car. I'll treat to know that all of my needs are easily and naturally met in terms of transporting me from place to place. And this comes about in the easiest possible way for the greatest good of all concerned, et cetera, et cetera. From which step four arises a feeling of gratitude. And that's actually a, a hint. If you don't really want the, the state or condition that you've been treating about, the gratitude will be weak. See, and then you, you can revisit the thing. Oh, I, I really don't want what I thought I wanted. But the gratitude will well up at the idea of that need being met and that fullness being present in your life. And then the fifth step is to let the whole thing go and release it out of conscious awareness into the subconscious, which is where the creative work actually gets done. And so release is a very active step. It's, it's, a, it's a definite changing of the attention from the situation at hand to something else, to let the subconscious do it. It's kind of like saving stuff to your hard drive. You know, it's, uh, now, it's, now it's working at a level that I could not predict or force in any way. That's true. Would release, you know, I, I'm going to slip into 12-step language because that's mm -hmm. one of my paths, but would release be similar to surrender? Or Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because I don't know how my good is going to come about. I heard this great quote, and I don't know who it's from, and I really ought to look it up because I've been trotting it out for a while now. A spiritual teacher was asked, where is my good coming from by a student? And the teacher replied, it's coming from wherever it is now, which sounds, oh. sounds like a blow off, but it's kind of deep, isn't it? You know, it's a nice yeah, coin yeah. right there. It's a nice coin. Exactly. <laughs> it's like, nobody knows if you knew where it was coming from, you'd have gone and gotten it right now, but nobody knows where it's coming from. So it's on its way out of, out of the everywhere into the here to surrender to that is to surrender to the great mystery. This is, you know, it, it's not even about it's not even about my getting what I want because my overall soul journey might be so much greater than just the acquisition of this one thing. It 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 could lead doors open and new things unfold and and on and on and on. It's like when a little kid is given a musical instrument or something. You don't know where that's going to take them. It might, they might stick it in the closet and never play it again, or they might dabble with it, or it might become a career, and they might become, you know, a musical genius who's heard of a thousand years from now. So we just don't know where all of this is leading. Why is feeling so important in prayer work? Why, why do you need to have the feeling, you know, as a ma major aspect of it? Because, because feeling is the universal medium. It's, it is 
the subconscious, the subjective field into which things go. Uh, if, if it stays at the level of thought, it's just conceptual and abstract and, and really private. But when wrapped in feeling, a concept is transferred out to, you see, I talked with my aunt. Oh, you didn't know this on the phone call. Um, it's 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 transferred out to all available parties who are on the same wavelength the 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 call of the soul if you will uh that's where the creative work is really is really done we're really good at thinking about things and conceptualizing things but emotional buy-in is is typically more we're more restrained with that and as a result, we have more of a limited, we, we can create for ourselves more of a limited set of outcomes because it's just in the, in the recognizable uh, intellectual field. It, emotion is, is key. Holmes said that in many ways. Neville Goddard talked about that a great deal. Emma Hopkins, all of, all of the great New Thought teachers have in one way or another brought us to that. And so has uh, transformational psychology independent of new thought but surrounding new thought Jung, and and all of the work that that uh, came down from him and through his students yeah it's vital the feeling and i i love the saying and you can you can tell me about it treat and move your feet yeah the question comes i, I there are two questions that i get more often than any other in in one languaging or, or another the first question is hey all this sounds great now what do i do and then the other question is is prayer really enough don't i have to do something you know without splitting hairs prayer is doing something and action that follows prayer is an extension of that prayer so yeah i have to if i'm not willing to move my feet then i'm not really interested in what i treated about uh it's more of a it's more of a testing kind of it. Let's see what happens here. It's, you know, I'm, I'm kind of aloof from it. If I'm really interested in, in creating a, a specific different set of outcomes in my life, I'm naturally going to take the steps. <clears throat> if I want that new job, I say I do. I'm going to work the phones. You know, I'm going to go to the job fair. I'm going to write the resume. I'm going to do whatever the, you know, the material or the allopathic steps are to, to create that. And uh, same as, uh, you know, creating a world that works for everyone here, ending war, ending hunger, ending poverty, ending racism, uh, replacing them with something greater means envisioning the greater possibilities that we have. How would it be if the world were in love with itself? And then what steps am I willing to take today uh, back to that? So a follow up on that. Mm-hmm. A lot of a lot of talk these days. I know I, I teach at a seminary, so I often hear this from my students. They talk about the desire of wanting to find their higher purpose, and and they may not have yet the idea of what that is. So, could you talk a little bit about this idea of of finding purpose? How science of mind might treat that idea? Sure. Well, there's a school of thought that all of us decided to come here from wherever we were before. Okay, and to and to accomplish certain things uh, depends on who you ask. How specific this gets to 
to right certain wrongs or complete certain incompletions or, or what have you. Uh, but Jung said, and I'm paraphrasing, something like, whatever it was you did when you were a child that you really loved to do, that's what you came to this life. That's the purpose that you came to this life to, to fulfill. Uh, I think that purpose unfolds. It's not a destination of finality as much as it's a, a way of being that opens out into, into other things. For instance, you'll hear of musicians who become visual artists as well. And then they take up poetry and then they do, you know, you, you get on that wavelength and, and other, other media make themselves available to you. And then some people say, well, I want to, my purpose in life is, is to be compassionate to all, all beings. And they have in mind when they say that who all beings are, and then they get. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Been there. You know? Yeah. <laughs> stretches and stretches and stretches. And, stretches. And, stretches. Yeah. and here come yeah. more of them. And, and wow. <laughs> and yeah. Where do I, where do I put this? So it, it, it's expanding and evolving constantly. The idea of personal purpose and engagement in life. Which brings up, you know, the concept that, that many of us are, are looking for. What is the, quote, unquote, right livelihood for me? Uh, you know, how, do, how does science of mind treat the idea that there is a right livelihood? Well, again, it's changing. Right livelihood is, you know, one of the uh, eightfold path of Buddhism. But it's right livelihood for, for, for us is constantly shifting. It's constantly changing. It's, um, you know, I... Being here with you today is not something I anticipated. Um, I mean, well, certainly not the first time I was with you. I didn't anticipate it. You, you contacted me out of the blue and said, would you like to do this? And I was like, whoa. And so that became, and then when you came back this time and said, would you like to do this? It was like, yeah, because I had a really positive experience the first time. But you see what I'm saying is that good because I, some people hate us, you know. Oh I'm no, they sure don't. You know what, really Jim? I don't know who those people are. I've never met them, so I think I think we might need to work on Jim's. Yeah, you're right. My consciousness here. My consciousness. <laughs> yeah, you're choosing that, Jim. Uh, no, no, you're awesome. You really are. Uh, but you see what I'm saying is, you yeah. know, suddenly this now this is part of my right livelihood i've lately been the book is part of my right livelihood i've been asked to do different things that i hadn't done before at least in the ways i'm being asked to do them and so it expands and it expands and more comes your way and then you have boundaries and you have the sniff test and you have all these other things that you apply to what's going on that when you get asked to well wait a minute no that feels like it's off purpose for me or you know that's not right for me and so there, there's a, a constant uh, kind of recalibrating of, of where we are in life back to the back to our purpose. Does science of mind believe in a soul, the idea of a soul? Yeah, what Holmes, even, yeah. Whatever, whatever that is. Yeah, Holmes was very confusing about that because he, he redefined some words, you know, and he talked about the world soul and, and a soul as the subconscious, soul as the medium between conscious and, and form and uh but yeah i mean for want of a better word we have an individuality a personality that we believe i say we speaking on behalf of you know believe survives the grave and and came here from somewhere some dimension 
else, whether you believe in reincarnation or transmigration or whatever, you know. And, and so we're passing through. We're passing through this life. We know that we have a born-on date. And we know that we have an expiration date that we, the body comes off and we go out of the world. Uh, but there's something in us that travels farther. And that's that that spark of divine light. Now Holmes maintained, and I I like to agree with him. I don't know, you know, yet, but he maintained that we re, we retain our identity and our personality and our memories and so forth when we leave here. And it would be sad to think otherwise, because you know we've all gone to a lot of trouble um, learning stuff, and it'd be a shame if we couldn't. Carry that yeah, that'd be such a pain to have to have to relearn everything again. Come on. Well, I don't know, Jim, though. On the on the flip side of that, yeah. If you get absorbed back into the oneness, you have the opportunity to learn some new things without perhaps the baggage you're carrying around. Well, that's true. Yeah, you know. That's true. If Phil, Phil Pullman writes about that, you know, in the I'll sign up for that. Yeah, who knows? <laughs> So I'm going to take a, a detour here, and I'm, mm-hmm. I'm just curious um, what science of mind believes when it comes to something like guardian angels or guides and that sort of thing. We don't have a we don't have a definitive teaching on that. I mean, whatever anybody wants to I mean, whatever anybody wants to make it at, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. We believe that there. Well, I'll say we. I believe that there are elemental forces and and, and unseen things around us all the time i believe that they're benevolent i believe that it's uh, there's so much more to life than we could possibly understand and since the dawn of time humans have have looked to these things it's where where our initial concepts of gods and goddesses came from you know uh so if you want to style it as an angel which is kind of a western thing uh you know great um uh spirit guides which is kind of a more or less an 18th, 19th century thing. Sure. Uh, it, it doesn't hurt. And as I said to somebody who has this, it's like, if there are such forces, why would I not want to believe in them? What about psychics, Jesse? We're all psychics. This is, this is important for me to say we're it's a psychic is not like a profession. I mean, it can be, but it, it's not a separate identification of a class of people who go be psychics. Psychic awareness and psychic ability is a function of every living thing. Uh, it's a level of information, but it's not the only level of information. So it informs all the other levels from the intellect to the symbolic to this. Then there's the intuitive, which is the awareness of the oneness of everything, the mystical places and things like psychic awarenesses. So we treasure, and I'll tell you, there's a rich history of psychic exploration within religious science because Ernest Holmes was a friend of J.B. Rhine and uh, Olga and Ambrose Worrell. I didn't know that. uh, Olga and Ambrose Worrell. I didn't know that. Harold Sherman, yeah, with the ESP experiments and the... There was a, a Holmes Research Symposium in the 70s that met every year at Founders Church. And they and these people, like I just mentioned, lectured. And, and it was looked at as really, really good information. And then, I don't know, something happened and it, it sort of our attention turned otherwise. And it's not been demonized by any sense, but it's, it's not really been followed up as much. I guess, there, well, you remember if you were around in the 70s, 
But you had Flanagan with the pyramid power. You had a you had a lot of interest in in uh, Harris psychology happening in the world right then. And so that you know that drove part of it. But yeah, it's a very real thing, and it's misunderstood, and it's under far under investigated. To pivot back to what we were talking about earlier about alarm at the state of the country, at the state of the world, and what's going on, what can we do about that from the science of mind perspective and from yeah. us personally. Yeah, I ask myself that every, every, every day. Yeah. Well, we've been through things before. We've seen things that look like they would never change. When I was a fairly new minister, uh, the Berlin Wall came down. Uh, apartheid in South Africa. There, there have been amazing positive breakthroughs in the world. Uh, I, my personal take on what's happening in the world right now is it's the last throes of the old order passing away, the the enmity, the divisions, and, and it, it's going out with kicking and screaming. Um, what I do is regular spiritual practice. I go to the place, the tranquil garden of the mind, where none of this has ever happened. And I, you know, I have to, every time I say that, I have to hasten to add, I don't stay there because that's denial and that's, that's yeah. not, that's not healthy or useful, but I have to go there. Mm-hmm. I have to go there to be reminded that there's more than this. There's more than this. And that people deep down in their hearts, no matter who they are or how much I might disagree with them are still perfect expressions of spirit who are operating on the information that they have as to what they think they need to do to get by in this world. What does it mean to be open at the top? Something Ernest Holmes was really uh, emphasized, I think. He meant by that, I think, that remain open to inspiration that's unfiltered, that's immediate, unmediated, direct, and so on. Uh, otherwise, we get, we get doctrinaire. Uh, we say, well, this is how we've always done it. And this is how it must always be. And, and uh, uh, you know, I'll, I'll give you an example of that, that uh, in uh, the mid-80s, when HIV AIDS was first diagnosed and became an epidemic, uh, certain of our centers started doing hands-on care for people. I don't mean... I don't mean hands-on healing work, but I mean like taking people to doctor's appointments and dressing their their sarcoma wounds and, and feeding them in their homes and, and stuff. And up to that point, that hadn't been a thing in at least in our part of New Thought. It was well, we'll take it into prayer, and we'll, you know. And so it was this this palliative care and remedial care that was was being done required a whole new set of uh, a way of looking at things and and uh, one of our ministers beloved ministers quoted Holmes to somebody who was questioning her about is this on principle and she said well in the textbook he says we look at discordant fact in the face and see the truth behind it mm-hmm. it's like oh end of conversation mm-hmm, mm-hmm. we look at discordant fact in the face so being open at the top means being open to to new information that's not passed through any committee or board or, or what have you knowing knowing the truth of your own being we have just a minute left i wondered if you could just say if, if you had one piece of advice 
to our listeners about how to use science of mind, what would you say? Yeah, I sound like a broken record when uh, when I do this. And I used to say, you know, records, that round vinyl thing, but they're back. Um, <laughs> regular spiritual practice, regular spiritual practice, whatever it is, whatever your practice is, whatever prayers you say to whatever deity you believe in, whatever candles you light or, or incense or anything, postures, poses, uh, it's do it. Do it no matter what. Uh, for for a 12-step person, they've, they've heard this in that if you have a good day, go to a meeting. If you have a bad day, go to a meeting. If your rear end falls off, put it in a bag and take it to a meeting. Whatever happens. Same with the spirit, because 12-step work is spiritual practice. Your spiritual practice and mine is to do to go to the place of our, our knowing of the oneness of all things regularly, no matter what. And in that, we will find answers and questions, direction, uh, life purpose, right livelihood, the love of our life, whatever it is that we seek. Thank you, Jesse, so much for joining us again. We didn't, nearly, so well. we didn't nearly get to as many questions as I wanted to get to, but I, I really appreciate you coming on again. It's my joy. Thank you so much. It's, it's great to meet you in the flesh. It's great to meet you, Reverend Sarah. So thanks again. Jesse's new book is More Than We Seem, um, and it's Jesse G. Jennings. For more great information about Sarah Bowen, pre-order her new book, Sacred Sendoffs, and you could go to sacredsendoffs.com. You can find out more about me on my website called youthrivehere.com. Thanks, everybody. I'm Jim Lefter with Sarah Bowen. We'll talk to you next time on Big Universe on Unity Online Radio. strength than I've known. I have within me greater talent to express, more courage I can muster, more faith than I Thank you for listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. I'm Suzanne Giesman, and if you've ever wondered about life after death or if it's possible to connect with a higher consciousness, I invite you to join me for my podcast, Messages of Hope. It's my mission to share with you that our loved ones who have passed are always with us, and we are so very loved. I want to teach you how to live a consciously connected and divinely guided life. Listen here on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network.